All right, and we are here again. We are back again. As always, I'm Matt, and filling in for Drew this week is our very special guest, the very talented Kaylee Johnson. Wow, what an introduction. I know. I don't know if you know this, Kaylee, but we are continuing on our comedy sequel list. Ooh. And today, we are doing our Christmas episode. <gasps> What better episode to have me on? Exactly, because you love Christmas. I do love Christmas. (laughs) Well, that's good, because today we're doing the follow-up to the 1990 Home Alone, and we are doing Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. Guess who's alone in New York this Christmas? Home Alone 2 Lost in New York comes out in 1992. It's once again written by John Hughes and directed by Chris Columbus. It stars Macaulay Culkin, Daniel Stern, Joe Pesci, John Hurd, Catherine O'Hara, Tim Curry, and Brenda Fricker. Home Alone 2 uh, takes place a year after the first Home Alone, where the McAllisters are now getting ready to go on a trip to Florida for the holidays. But after a mix-up at the airport, Kevin separates from his father and ends up on the wrong flight, which lands him in New York City. The worst place for a child. <laughs> so before we talk about the sequel, let's talk about the first Home Alone a little bit, because this is, a, this is like a perfect example of where the first movie is like such a hit that I don't think you can ever really do a sequel that would kind of even live up to that first one. So even going into the second one, whether this was, you know, back in 1992 or us watching it now, I, I, I'm, I'm going into it not like being ready to know that it can't live up to that hype. So I'm not going to judge it for that, like right off the mm. bat. You know what I mean? Okay. I'm going to be fair to Home Alone too, but my gosh, like that first Home Alone was really successful. So the fact that they're doing a sequel to it, like makes sense, but it's also like a daunting challenge, you know? Yeah, it's like, how do you believably have a situation where he is home alone again (laughs) with the same criminals? But I will say that I do think that the second one actually does like a really good job of keeping the exact same plot fresh. Yeah, no, there's definitely a lot more plot, which we'll get into with the second one. But even just to go back to what you just said, like you can't be home alone again. And I would argue that he's never really home alone, like in New York, because his home isn't there. Are we getting into semantics? I want to get a little bit into semantics about the title because it's Home Alone 2 colon Lost in New York. He's alone. They should have just called this The Misadventures of Kevin McAllister. You can't (laughs) rebrand. You got to know what you're what you're selling. People got to know what they're going to see. Is it like in a lot of ways like the same movie just revamped? Yes, but I don't think that it's bad Mm -hmm. and everything that happens is set up pretty well like we just watched it i was paying attention i was like oh yeah they set this up over here they set this up here like it's not a lazy script i as for as far as like general thoughts go like i don't think it's bad either like i there's a lot of things i enjoy about it i think there are some things i enjoy about it for the reasons that are like unintentional to the filmmakers uh just in regards to yeah that they are like doing this again and sometimes they make references to the fact that like oh we're going through this again and sometimes that works and sometimes i'm laughing like at the movie but overall i enjoy it 
uh, it is just one of those like sequels again where it's wild that they're like, okay, we're going to do this again. We got to come up with a plot. And the thing in the third act where what it's going to be about, like what he's going to set up booby traps for, it's not related to like the first half. Like the first, he's just like going on vacation. So yeah, just as like general thoughts, like I, I do like it. I enjoy it. But yeah, there are some... There are some interesting things in the script that we can talk about as far as I the mean, plot goes. As far as like his objective kind of changing in the movie, that happens in the first one too, though. And the same thing happens here in New York, but we already know what's happening. Mm-hmm. So we already know how things are going to play out. So I think it feels like it takes a lot longer. Also, like there are more, you know, like New York related hijinks yeah. that are happening as well that are taking up some time. Yeah, for so, sure. <laughs> that act to like montage of him going around the city or just like getting involved with different wacky characters. I like the fact that they it's do. It's not a New York movie unless you've got a montage of wacky characters. <laughs> I like the fact that he does eventually meet some dangerous folk in New York when it's like nighttime and stuff. But Mm -hmm. yeah, a lot of the characters he's meeting are very like, you know, oh, that's wacky, but it still is like a dangerous city. Oh, yeah. But let's let's keep on this theme of kind of like talking about uh, the plot of the second one and we can compare a little bit to the first one. What happens in the first one is the power goes out. And that's why all the alarms mm-hmm. are shut off, um, which is great because then it's like, oh, no, like we overslept mm-hmm. it. And this one, the dad just unplugs his alarm clock mm-hmm. because he's trying to charge something. And somehow that affects the rest of the house of waking yeah, up on time. It doesn't make sense that nobody else has an alarm set. So that that one doesn't check out. But miraculously, Kevin makes it onto the van, even though they're running very late. He did get in a fight with his brother and his family got upset with him again. And he said that he wanted to go on vacation alone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like even before, like, you know, the inciting incident of just that first like comparison, they do retread a lot of the same beats of Kevin versus his family and his family, to Kevin's credit, are like oblivious to how they treat Kevin. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah. Even after all of the shit from last year. Exactly. <laughs> and for some reason, they're in a Christmas like kind of choir, and his brother Buzz is like messing with him, and he's like, you know, he's got his like fake candles and he's putting them behind his ears so his ears glows while Kevin's like singing a solo, and he's like pretending to like drum on his head, and everyone, and the parents are just loving it. They're I just know, there's so much it. laughter for something that is just objectively not funny. For some reason, it's a choir that's got that covers all the ages of the people in this town because Buzz is in it and Kevin's in it and all the parents are there from the town and stuff and you would think that they would be more mad at Buzz for disturbing what clearly is this like ceremonial choir that they do every year there's got to be some like value to this but they don't blame Buzz for messing up Kevin's solo they like applaud him and laugh because he's being like the funny brother in the background like playing on Kevin's head and it's like and then even afterwards they're still like making them both apologize even though Buzz is like the adult situation yeah I mean the only thing that I like can say about that is that like because Kevin hits him like all the stuff fall falls over like the poor piano teacher gets yeah. nailed in the head. You know, I can I can understand being like, hey, like you shouldn't have retaliated or whatever. But like it, Buzz started it. The, Buzz the, is a menace. The McAllisters are crazy. Okay. Yeah. And they have raised a tiny sociopath. We're talking about Buzz, right? I'm talking about Kevin. <laughs> oh, no. 
Well, well, I'm gonna get. We'll get into characters maybe a little bit later, but but just like to keep going on the plot. So like, yeah, we have all this setup. Obviously, this time around, after they wake up late, he gets separated from his father at the airport, and I feels like they're doubling down so much circumstantially of how he can separate like from his family, like even at the airport. By the t- by the time he got on the plane, I was just like shaking my head, and I was like, ah, oh, that Kevin McAllister. She's he, hijink. He's just hijink. <laughs> But here's the thing, here's here's the point that I'm getting to. Regardless of all this coincidental stuff that happens between Kevin and his family, how he gets to New York, and you know, everything Kevin across the board, I'm actually fine with. But the one thing that actually bothers me is is the coincidence that the wet bandits are also somehow going to end up in New York City. And I think in general, this is gonna be my biggest gripe I have with the movie, actually, mm-hmm. from a plot standpoint. The wet bandits have broken out of jail, they've smuggled their way on a fish truck, mm-hmm. and now they've landed in New York City mm-hmm. where Kevin McAllister also the big is. Apple. The big apple. What did you think of the wet bandits uh, the second time around? Uh, less menacing <laughs> overall. Um, Marv, it's just like they they were like, could you be a caricature of Marv from the first one? Which, to be fair, like Daniel Stern is delightful. Yeah. But uh, they definitely like, even though like this time it's like they have a gun, yeah. like they're just not as threatening Mm-mm. in in this one um they're really like dumbed down like they i i got like the three stooges kind of vibe a lot from them. more in the yeah. second one i mean there's definitely in the first one but they're really dumbed down in the second one there's something too about like the idea of someone like breaking into your home is definitely like very scary but like i don't know when you're like in a city like that it's like there's like so many opportunities for like someone to intervene for, you know, the police to get involved. It's just not as scary. Like the stakes just aren't as high. Well, also, I would argue that they're smarter in the first one because they establish that they've been hitting, they like, they, they've been hitting houses for a while now. Whether or not they're silly and like, you know, gullible when they're getting, when they're breaking into the house mm-hmm. and falling into Kevin's traps, they are like smart enough to pull off these plans. But in the second one, they're not only both so dumb from like a day-to-day standpoint, but then their plan is they're going to rob like one of the biggest toy stores (laughs) in New York City. And that's like a, for me, that's a big jump from like clever house, like burglary, Mm-hmm. to we're going to rob like a corporate store in New York City on Christmas Eve just by staying in the store overnight. Like that's very like silly, I think. It definitely feels silly. I, like you see that he like put thought into it of like they're just going to hide in the store and wait so that that way they don't have to worry about any like alarms or anything. And like it's thought out. The only argument that I could make for that is they both had a lot of head trauma last year. <laughs> so they probably are, you know, a little dumber. I, you know what? I wish they would have said something like that. Like in the in the movie itself, mm-hmm. like I haven't been thinking straight since I got hit on the head thirty seven times a year ago. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like overall, like performance wise, obviously uh, Daniel Stern and Joe Pesci are good once again. I do feel like Joe Pesci really doesn't like have anything to do besides just like dumping exposition or then just saying how much he wants to kill Kevin. Whereas in Daniel Stern, because he gets a lot dumber in this one, also yeah, he not only like his caricature is very enjoyable to watch, but he. Also, I think it's some of the funniest lines in the movie. <laughs> like he's oh, yeah. got the best sound bites out of all the performers. You were you were a big fan. Oh yeah. 
smell that? Yeah. You know what that is? Fish. It's freedom. No, it's fish. So Daniel Stern is like a little elevated. Joe Pesci feels a little like downgraded. When the two of them are together and we're in our third act and they're going through Kevin McAllister's House of Hell once more, um, it's enjoyable, but uh, it's very, it's very silly. Very, very silly and violent. I, yeah, I was about to say, like, I get it that you have to like up the ante like for the second movie, but like even the stuff that goes down in the first movie is like rough yeah and then this one starts with four bricks to the face <laughs> which i lost it oh we yeah were you were that. gone we haven't even gotten to a trap yet and he is just launching bricks mm. at both of the bandits and there's something so like extra like i don't know messed up or just cynical or just like the director's like i don't know he's just he's just chucking fucking bricks in their fucking domes. It's so like aggressively simplistic and violent that it it just kind of like shots like Jesus. I mean, the stuff that goes on in the house though, what is it? Marv gets like uh, staple gunned in the butt, in the dick and in the face and then walks in and falls down like an entire story down this like huge hole yeah. in the floor. Then he like slips and falls and like a bunch of paint cans fall on him. Then he gets electrocuted very intensely. Mm -hmm. He should be dead. Well, they both get fried at like the same moment. Like Kevin's poured something in the toilet. Was it it's just- It's like gasoline, gasoline or kerosene or something. So once Joe Pesci's head catches on fire, he has to dunk his head in the toilet and then he just blows up. And that's when you really know like we're in cartoon territory because oh, yeah. it's just a bomb just went off in this building. <laughs> And Joe Pesci still has all his teeth. Yeah. And maybe that's the thing is because you know these traps are coming in the second one that you don't have the luxury of the first one where it's like, oh, I know Kevin came up with the plan. Let's see how this plan like unfolds. And so in this one, instead of going, oh, I wonder what else he set up, you go, oh, what's next? What's the next big thing that he set up? Mm -hmm. There's like, it's it's the same, but it's different in a way yeah. as far as your intention of how you're watching it, I feel yeah. like. Yeah. I do also wonder if like for the rest of Kevin's life, if like every place he walks into, he just starts automatically thinking of how he could like maneuver that house into like a death trap. Exactly. <laughs> Well, that's a good point because I want to I want to shift over a little bit. I want to talk about Kevin McAllister because I wrote two notes in my notes about Kevin, and one is Kevin is a sociopath. Okay. And then I put Kevin is a psychopath. You're being <laughs> so hard on this kid. And I I want to use uh, those two. I want to defend those two sentences by just one example, and that is uh, how Kevin lies. Okay, how he lies to people and how he lies based off the situation that he's in. In this first one, he literally thinks that his parents disappeared, or like his family disappeared. Mm -hmm. So whether he's lying to uh, somebody at the grocery store or, or anybody out there, it's cute and it's clever in that moment because, oh, I didn't expect him to be that clever on his feet, but he's clever on his feet. That's really cute and that's funny. In the second one, his lies are so elaborate and they are so 
like detail. <laughs> and I swear to God, it was like at one point you're watching like an episode of like Dexter or something <laughs> or like or, or like, you know, Ted Bundy about how he got from location to location. Like, oh, my God. This, this is how serial killers move from place to place is their ability to lie and manipulate people and like use their innocence and their age. It's just like it's bananas. Well, what is he supposed to do, Matt? He's lost in New York. I guess. He's got to have somewhere to stay but, and you might as well stay at the historic plaza. The thing for me, though, that's interesting, or at least the where, where I lose it a little bit, is you wanted a vacation. So really what you're doing now is you're lying to just enjoy this vacation. But you know yeah. that you know that eventually the vacation's going to end. Yeah. In that first one, it's just pure, like, survival. Versus in this one, he's he's really like, he's like, let's see what else I can get away with. And whether it's, you know, when we get to like the shower scene, for example, where Tim Curry, and we'll talk about Tim Curry because he's, uh. he's one of the best parts of the movie. When Tim Curry enters that suite and uh, there, and Kevin set up a device to where his inflatable clown is in the shower, he's got a pre-recording from his uncle saying stuff in the shower, and he's doing all this to basically, you know, scare away Tim Curry to get him out of the room. Mm-hmm. My God, like I was just thinking about like, this is really thought out in a way that's it's kind of creepy. So he's using his skills from the first one, but also like a big part of the first one is him facing his fears. Like he has that whole scene in the first one where he like walks outside and he's like, hey, like I'm not afraid anymore. Yeah. And like him getting over like some of his fears is like a personal journey for him. For this one, it's literally him being a better person is his journey. Okay. Like he has that whole like conversation with the pigeon lady, you know, about like trying to do good deeds. And he's like, "Ah, I haven't really, you know, done anything good. And that's what sets the whole thing off, you know? Uh, that he's like, well, I need to do something good and I need to do something like big. And that like wanting to like do good or do right by another person who's also doing good is his like motivator. So basically his arc in the second one is going from being selfish to selfless. Yes, that's what I would say. Okay. I did see something Actually, earlier today, uh, a meme that said that Home Alone is diehard for kids. Yeah. And I thought that was pretty spot on. Yeah. Honestly, like, you know, it would have been even better if, like, just the whole family went to New York and they were all staying in a big hotel. And then the and then Marvin... Uh, and Harry. Then, yeah, Marvin Harry, they show up and they're going to, like, rob everyone in the hotel. And Kevin's got to, like, his family's trapped in a room and he's got to... <laughs> Kevin's going through He's the like air ducts. He's like up in, in the air ducts. He just does die hard, essentially. Yeah. Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? Don't you know a kid always wins against two idiots? So yeah, so I'm I'm fine with that being the arc for Kevin, uh, even if his want of his own vacation is, you know, just very, well, it's like the same thing he wants in the first one, but now it's just a vacation. It's like, okay, that's fine. But what I really want to talk about is the parents. Once again, the McAllisters are horrible people. <laughs> and there was an opportunity when they are at the police station, I believe, and they're talking to the cop and the cop's asking like, oh, has the kid ever been missing before or anything? And I really thought that somebody was going to have this cop be like, you two are like the worst parents ever. And I thought that would have been like a fun meta joke that they mm-hmm. were trying to do throughout the film with these kind of callbacks. 
uh, to the or references to the first one. But instead, they flip that scene to where the parents end up making a joke about it, and the cop doesn't laugh. And I was just like, screw you guys. You guys don't get to make a joke about losing your kid. Stop losing your kid. Yeah, keep an eye on him. Seriously. Funnily enough, we never lose our luggage. <laughs> right. There's really, besides that one scene where I thought there could have been an opportunity just to shed a light on how bad like these parents are, I really don't have much to say about the parents just because like they are so similar to the first one. But honestly, I'd rather spend uh, this time talking about a character that we do like since we're talking about characters oh. we don't like. And uh, let's talk about Rob Schneider. No, I'm just kidding. Let's talk about, <laughs> let's talk about Tim Curry. Wait, what is his name in the movie? Mr. Hector. Because I know Rob Schneider is Cedric. Well, you know, to be honest, like, because my complaint about the Wet Bandits earlier was that I really didn't feel like they needed to be in this movie. But up until we get to that point where the bandits are going to do this thing, the villain is technically the people that work in the hotel because these are the people that Kevin has to, like, dupe and mm -hmm. lie to. And at the head of this is Tim Curry. Yeah. <laughs> I just really love, like, in... Every movie that Tim Curry is in, he is just so like delightfully campy. And I really feel like he just elevates each scene that he's in. He's like just the perfect amount of silly. Mm -hmm. It's those like little moments too. It's like after he finishes a sentence and gives like a little side glance or something like that. Or just how, oh, he, yeah. just uh, how he inflects on one of the words that he's saying, you know? Yeah, his his little look to the side after he gets slapped by Catherine O'Hara and he says, do bottle up, it's quite cold outside. <laughs> Madam, there are hundreds of parasites out there armed to the teeth. Do bundle up, it's awfully cold outside. Well, maybe like the theme of all these movies, or especially maybe just the second one, is that adults are stupid. Because oh, yeah. even from the standpoint of like Tim Curry and those people, if they really think that this kid is like duping them and like using the hotel room, there are many ways to stop him <laughs> and to get him. But instead, they end up getting like mixed up in the Kevin lies and the hijinks. And that's that's kind of why I was saying he's very like sociopathic in this one because his lies. Oh, he's a gaslighter. He's a hundred percent. He's like, do you really think that me, a child, could book a hotel room at this hotel, the plaza in New York City? That's what I'm <laughs> saying. It's, it's like, huh, well, now that you say it that way, I'm not sure. And his tricks are not to like save himself or survive or protect his home. His tricks are to continue a lie that he's staying in this hotel suite with his father. So yeah. his motivation is really just like so... He like, wants to have fun. He wants Kids to just have want fun. to have fun. He wants some peace and quiet away from his family. It is. Who doesn't want some of that, am I right? <laughs> um, it is crazy how they fall for this television thing, like not once, but twice. I guess I guess it's only once because the first time's the tape recorder, which fun fact, I guess there was a deal when they were making this movie with that line of like tape recorders. The talk, 
back yeah the talk back it? thing I think that's what it's called. so john hughes like made a deal with like that company and this is like one of the first movies it's ever like featured in to help kind of like wow. sell it <laughs> which becomes a very big part of kevin's ability to get where he needs to go because he can record anybody saying anything quite frankly I think the biggest idiot at the hotel is the woman who gave him the reservation in the first yeah. place because that recording, that sounds like some Ted Bundy shit right there. I really was wondering how is he going to take what he's saying in the microphone and make it sound like his dad? Uh, but yeah, he just slows down the audio so it sounds like this. Give me pizza. <laughs> Give me pizza. So it is, it's very, it's very ridiculous how people like fall for that. But uh, what I will say out of all those like little kind of gags that he does, I do really like the fact that the fake mobster movie that he's watching the first one. <laughs> Angels with Filthy Souls. Yes. And now we have a sequel to that movie as well that he's watching, which is. Angels with even filthier souls. <laughs> First of all, that's great because this is a sequel within a sequel that we're so talking meta. about on the sequel podcast. So meta. I do think it goes on a little long, but I really like the front half of that, just with the conflict. In the first one, it's just like a mobster, like a simple kind of story. In this one, it's that his wife is going around town smooching on all the guys, including... He, he was smooching my brother. Including his brother. She was not. She was smooching with your brother. You was here, and you were smooching with my brother. That's a dirty rock. And when he uses that tape back on uh, Tim Curry and all the staff mm -hmm. of the hotel, like, I understand the silliness of using it on the pizza guy in the first one. But in this one, this is a longer conversation. He makes them like get on their knees and say, I love you and stuff. <laughs> and then, yeah, like, it's really funny that there's a guy with a machine gun in the hotel. It's like, geez. Just enjoy the ride, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> just enjoy it. Well, it's like Kevin's running from these people and the tape is so long and the conversation is so long. He's just sitting in the bedroom. They're cutting back to him. And he's just like, I mean, yeah, that's fair. Laughing over and over. It's like, get the hell out of here. Well, he does when he can just let it play, you know, but then he has to come back for the very Christmas. He felt the animal. But either way, he is resilient because he does survive. That's true. In New York. And one of my favorite lines in the movie is when, uh, when Kate the mom finally shows up in New York. She's looking for Kevin and a cop like kind of pulls up to the curb and she comes up to him and stuff. And he says to her, he's like, well, you know, if you were his age, where would you be? Me? I'd probably be lying dead in a gutter somewhere. <laughs> I thought it would been really funny. She's like, I'll go check the gutter. <laughs> <laughs> she's gotta have more optimism than that. Well, he's he's obviously able to survive because he's got his dad's uh, his dad's bag and he's got his money. And speaking of money, let's talk a little bit about the budget in the box office. So the first Home Alone, which comes out in 1990, it's got a budget of 18 million and it made a box office of 476.7. My God. <laughs> So obviously going into the second one, they all had to know that they weren't going to, you know, strike lightning twice, mm -hmm. right? But even on the second one, they get, which is pretty common, about like 10 more million dollars. So now they're doing a budget of $28 million and they made $359 million at the box office, which okay. is still very successful. Yeah. It's yeah, not yeah. like a not successful movie. No, for sure. Um, obviously... The Rotten Tomato scores are very different, whereas the first one has a 66 on Rotten Tomatoes, which ought, which still feels kind of low. I feel like that's low. Yeah. I feel, I feel like, like that's, that's some snobbery right there. For sure. Because that first one, whether or not there's like, you know, I mean, what's the biggest thing you could criticize is like the realism of all this. But 
you know, yeah, that's what makes the whole movie work. So I would probably give it over like an 80% for sure, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, if not close to the 90s. But the second Home Alone, Lost in New York, like I said, has a 35% on Rotten Tomatoes. Which, that feels low too. I think I'm okay with that. I think that's a really? little bit more accurate. Whoa. <laughs> Only because I think that, uh, I think it's just clunky. I think all the beats are there, but I do think that like that opening execution of establishing the family where they're at what they're doing how they get there how they get separated it's so repetitive the first one to where i feel like you actually could have done something a little bit more interesting also a little bit more character dynamic between the family like i do think there's something a little lazy about why he wants to be separated from his family again Mm -hmm. versus why not have him and his family be on better terms this time around he still gets separated with them. It's not what he wanted. And you put him kind of back in a survival mode again. But instead, when we do that pushing on Kevin and he goes, I lost my, like, I'm going to New York without my family. And he just like raises his eyebrows again. I'm like, is this really what you want? Well, I agree that maybe that would make like for a better script, but I don't think that makes for a fun holiday movie. Ah, yeah, I guess that's fine. You're just, just watching a scared child running around New York City <laughs> being like, have you seen my family? Like, there's nothing jolly about that. And the last thing I want to talk about, and this is, uh, this isn't a big deal, but there's literally a moment in the, in the third act when uh, Kevin is putting the bandits through his house of horrors, mm-hmm. but Marv, well, he's going through the house and he's just getting the shit kicked out, out of him over and over again. Um, when he's getting electrocuted, there's a moment where they literally cut to him just being a skeleton mm-hmm. with his wig on and his clothes on. And it's just like a little quick gag where he's getting electrocuted so hard that he turns into a skeleton. And how, how do you feel about that? I mean, yeah, I feel like that's kind of pushing it that's, a little bit. Yeah. That's that's a that's definitely more of the like cartoony aspect that you were talking about. That's that for me is even when we just kind of talk about like the violence and how it is like you feel it and you feel it a lot more in the first one I think than the second one because the second one's just so violent that I was more like shocked of how they were getting hurt. But when he cut to that quick glimpse of that freaking skeleton <laughs> In a in a in a wig, a Marv wig and a jacket. That's when I was like, you know what? Fuck you, Chris Columbus. <laughs> For you to have the gall, the gumption, <laughs> to cut to a quick skeleton being electrocuted because you thought, oh, that's gonna be hilarious. It's like, come on. That's yeah. The violence in this one is definitely like they they definitely like raise this like the violence level without like raising the stakes. But that's where I'm confused because you have the violence of chucking bricks off the top of a roof (laughs) and then you have somebody turning into a cartoonish skeleton by being electrocuted. It's like where, what is the spectrum here? It's Chris Columbus's world, baby. We're just in it. (laughs) And he's got bricks. He's got bricks and skeletons. He's got bricks for all the reviews of his his (laughs) shitty sequel. If you can't do any better than that kid, you're gonna lose! So as always on this podcast, we have three questions that lead to a final vote of is it worth going back again? And the first question is, does it work as a sequel? I think it works. Like I said before, like if they had tried to do it 
where he was just like alone in the house again, like that would have been way too repetitive and wouldn't have worked. And I do think that if you were going to do a sequel with the same family and have like the same thing happen, that having it be that he's like lost somewhere else is probably the only like believable way to essentially tell the same story. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like it works as a sequel, as a concept in regards to going to a bigger city and having them get lost in a different way. But I think in execution, it doesn't work as a sequel because it is too repetitive in the way that it sets up the characters and their relationships and how Kevin gets separated and whether or not we have fun when we're in New York, which we do. And whether or not there's even like, you know, a good like maybe heartfelt message about the connection that he has with the pigeon lady and what Kevin learns along the way. To me, it feels just a little too clunky. So that's going to be a check and an X. So the next question is going to be, is it enjoyable slash entertaining? Oh yeah, it's enjoyable. Like mm -hmm. we laughed a lot. Like. Are there things that are that happen that are completely outlandish? Yeah, but like that's part of the fun of it. Yeah, and I think it's enjoyable slash entertaining as well. I think even if the plot itself is not enjoyable, the performances and the the outlandishness, like you said, of a lot of these elements are really enjoyable as well. Mm -hmm. So it is fun. I do think it is a little too long. That's fair. It is like two hours. The first one is like a tight one hour, 43 minutes. This is two hours and one minute. Mm -hmm. And when you look, it's like, okay, well, where did that extra like, I mean, obviously for credits, but where's that extra like 14, 15 minutes being applied? And when you have that extra 15 minutes and you're not using it in your sequel to like, not develop, but just to have these characters like learn a bigger message or just like, you know, reconnect then it means even more. Like when, when Kevin and uh, his mom like finally connect again at the end of the movie where he's standing in front mm -hmm. of the tree, it's just the same scene again. It's just, they look at each other and they hug and stuff. So it is enjoyable slash entertaining, but uh, you know, there's just, it could have been more enjoyable for the right reasons versus it's enjoyable slash entertaining for me for half right reasons and half reasons I don't think that they intended. So that sounds like it's gonna get two checks. So the final question is, does it need to exist? This one's hard for me because I'm glad that it exists because I like it, big Tim Curry fan. Mm -hmm. But as far as like with the characters, like in the story, I don't think it needs to. Mm -mm. And I feel bad. <laughs> I don't think there's like, there's nothing like um, like disrespectful about the sequel. I don't, it doesn't feel as much as a, of a cash grab as other sequels do. Yeah. And even though it, it is repetitive, you know, th they know that audience want to see a lot of the same stuff again. So I'm not going to blame them 100% for a lazy script. They probably tried to do what they thought would be the best for, you know, returning profits, but it, it's still, it's it's not enough. For me to to say it needs to exist yeah. because it just doesn't feel like it had a story to tell it feels like they had to make a movie and they found they decided to do this story to yeah. do it and then along the way maybe they learned some stuff and they said okay let's throw in a scene like this or "Ooh, kevin will realize this and that'll mm -hmm. be his arc um but for the most part it just feels like very another one of these sequels where it's just like first one was successful so because of that we're gonna do it again mm -hmm. and that's what they did only this time they went to new york so that sounds like it's gonna get two X's. So if you're doing that math at home, that's actually gonna be three checks and three X's. Whoa. And for the third time, 
on this podcast, this sequel will go into sequel limbo. We couldn't come to a conclusion on it. It doesn't get a check or an X. It's a tie. So it's up for the people to decide because now it's going to live in sequel limbo with Matthew McConaughey and 102 Dalmatians and Rambo 2, I think. Yeah, Rambo 2. All right. As always, thanks so much, everyone, for listening. If you like this episode, make sure you like, subscribe, and you comment below. You can listen to this episode and other episodes that we've done uh, available wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can watch these episodes with video. Just subscribe to wag.productions on YouTube. Big special thank you to Kaylee Johnson for being oh, our guest you're too kind. today and for talking about uh, a Christmas classic sequel, if uh, we will. I had a jolly good time. And usually this is the point where I say to Drew, you got anything else to add, but I'll ask it to you. Kaylee, got anything else to add? I love you. All right, everyone, we will see you next time. Bye-bye.